All right, let's pray, and we're going to get at this last week of our time in Psalm 119, a summer psalm series, and uh, have a look at what it's got to say. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to hear from your word. Uh, We've been talking about how uh, it should be shaping our lives, how your word actually ministers to us, how it, it gets into our hearts and gets into our souls, and and has a transforming uh, effect, that it, that it fills us with delight, that it speaks to us of your grace. And this week, we're going to be talking about how your word ministers to us in confidence. So as uh, we look at this, as we open your word, whether that's in a, uh, you know, a, a paper format or in a digital format, uh, we pray your spirit would be uh, ministering to us there. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are, we're, we're using Psalm 119, and we have been for the last uh, two weeks, to see how the ministry of God shapes us, how it gets into our lives and shapes and forms us. Uh, we're all shaped by the things, uh, the influences that we take in. Uh, we're all shaped by the information that we receive. Like, life is not passive. You are being shaped uh, with what's coming into your life. The, the question is that we've been asking is, in all of that, are we being shaped by the Word of God? Is the Word of God one of the things, or is it the, the overarching, dominating uh, influence, voice, whatever, that's coming into our lives? And if that is the case, then we've seen it should be uh, producing delight in our lives. Is, is the Word of God shaping us with delight in our souls as it reveals to us the nature and the character of God? Uh, whether that comes to us through actual commands or blessings, uh, prophecies or, or decisions or stories, uh, whatever it is, um, do we find uh, lo- uh, enjoyable, lovable, the, the, the communication of God to his people? Does it, does it well up in delight for us? When the psalmist looked at the law of God, uh, he said he saw the person of God, the character of God, the heart of God, and we we heard Tim Chile say, Chile say to us that as the psalmist, as he read the word, it was like he came face to face uh, with the God that he loved. And I was thinking this morning as I, as I read that to myself again, often that's, you know, uh, people describe the nature of the Trinity as God being face to face, as God, uh, you know, encountering himself uh, in this experience and and so as we read the word of God we are kind of uh, invited into a similar relationship and experience we we get to be face to face with God that's the psalmist's experience he saw on the law an accurate portrait an accurate reflection of the character of God and he loved it. it and it and it delighted him because in that he saw God's own perfections and natures and his love for the psalmist and we said that Jesus is the perfect and personal ministry of the word of God his character uh, his love and his justice and his mercy his salvation and all that uh, was incarnated the word became flesh and in Jesus we have this complete picture of God to fill our hearts with to become to be face to face with and then in the next week we said is the word of God shaping us with grace, with God's undeserved favor? In there, do we encounter that as we read the word? Grace is God freely giving of himself, and most significantly, uh, even when we don't deserve it, even when we're undeserving of it. Grace, as we encounter it in the word, is a gift, but God is not only the giver, he himself is 
the gift that it is God through his word who gives us all that we need to know about him and live as he designed. God is for your well-being. In grace, God seeks us out. And in grace, God preserves us. And in grace, God sustains us and transforms us. And it's all taking place through his word. And then again, we saw that the most gracious and the greatest gift of grace was when God became, the, you know, the word made flesh. And in Jesus, we get to see the full expression of grace. John wrote, grace upon grace, of how God seeks out the undeserved with undeserved favor. A God who in and through Jesus, in an act of uh, inseparable operation and unity of purpose, turns, as Sandy said earlier, turns the wrath of God away from us as Jesus exclusively takes our place to bear that on the cross. And the cross is not just a place of shared punishment or some kind of example to emulate. It is an act of, the act of divine grace, divine self-giving that God being true to his character and true to his word does on our behalf. That is a grace to be shaped by. To realize that you are far more wicked than you dare admit. And that requires the cross. But at the same time to realize that you are far more loved than you ever dare dream. That is also going on in that moment. And today we are looking at how the ministry of the word shapes us with confidence. Confidence in and from God's word is one of those things that we think we have. Like, yeah, well, I trust it. It shapes me and all that sort of stuff until we're actually called upon to exercise it, then it must move from some kind of theoretical uh, knowledge to actual practical engagement. Over the last two weeks, as we've been looking into this psalm, I've provided some of the background and the details and the context and all that sort of information around Psalm 119. So I don't think we need to back over that again today. If you want to know more about the actual psalm, go back to those uh, messages, But suffice to say that Psalm 119 is a psalm that has on high repetition, high repetition uh, the vital ministry of the word of God in the inner spiritual lives of God's people. Like it's just at that, the whole way through the psalm. And that's the description that we borrowed from uh, Warren Wearsby to describe what the overarching kind of meta theme of this uh, psalm is. And today we're looking at how that vital ministry of the Word of God shapes us with confidence. Another thing that we would pick up in the psalm, if we were to read the psalm through in one sitting, which we kind of threatened last week, is that the psalmist, the, the dude, the lad who's writing this, is no stranger to affliction, is no stranger to conflict and adversity, no stranger to having his name and his character dragged through the mud on false allegations. And it seems as we read the psalm that the reason why this is happening is that it takes place in response in antagonism towards his life that he's being shaped by the ministry of God's word. It takes place because his life is ordered by God's word. But rather than get discouraged by the fact that having a life shaped by the word of God brings you into ridicule on times, time and time and time again, the psalmist turns back to the very word that shapes his life to gain confidence to deal with the life that it brings him into. 
we kind of see this all the time. We see this in verse 23. Uh, there, there, there are uh, princes, uh, people of considerable power, social influences, and they're plotting against the psalmist. What's his response? His confidence comes as he meditates on God's statutes. He takes delight in God's testimonies. They become what shape him. They become what he counsels his heart and his mind and his soul with. They become what direct his actions and his responses uh, to what's going on. And in verse 25, the psalmist, we read there, his soul clings to dust. Now, now, that's a vivid image because we came from dust and to dust we return. He's approaching death is the imagery that we've got going on there. And in verse 28, the soul, his soul melts away for sorrow. And in the context of the psalm, he feels like this because of the corrupt environment in which he lives. And that environment is trying to push in on him, trying to make him change his values, uh, maybe, you know, end his life in shame. You know, you couldn't live out what you claimed, that kind of stuff. It seeks to divide his heart, make him lose his way. Response of the psalmist? Confidence that God's word will lead him to a proper perspective, keep him from shame, deliver him in a quality of life that, that delights in God. In verse 50, the psalmist encounters affliction. Some kind of affliction is going on. Some kind of suffering has entered the psalmist's life. God's word reminds him, though, that he is not alone in this affliction. God is a comfort to those who are afflicted. Affliction does not mean abandonment of God. It doesn't mean just because you're afflicted that God's just kind of forgotten about you, given up on you in that moment. You must be doing something he doesn't like or something like that. But rather what we find is it is an opportunity to be further shaped by the word. We read it in our, Bronnie read about it in our passage today. Uh, later the psalmist goes on to say, it was good for me uh, that I was afflicted, that I might learn from your statutes. They create an environment where, where God's word can actually become practical. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. In verse 51, the psalmist comes under ridicule, mocking, scorn, the arrogant, the proud, the insolent. It's a description of, of people who think they know more, think they know better than him. And it comes because of his commitment to live according to the word. To them, he's foolish. He's, he's missing out on life or whatever the things are. Whose words should shape the psalmist's life? What should he be shaped by? Well, he takes comfort in God's rules of old. The permanency, the goodness of God's consistency, not some kind of new idea that's just turned up on the scene. Verse 61, the wicked ensnare him. They're actively trying to bring him to ruin. It's keeping him up at night. That we read there, at night, at midnight I rise. Now, this is my speculation here, uh, not written in the text, but it's keeping him awake. He's like, oh, it's grinding his gears. He's having one of those arguments in his head where he just gets better at better at winning the argument as it goes along. But it's creating anxiety. But so what does he do? He rises, and rather than have one of those arguments, he rises to praise God. He rises to read the Word. That, that, that. He remembers that rather than the words of the wicked. And he's at peace. And he just sleeps like a Calvinist. He's just back to bed. In verse 69, his mockers smear him with lies. 
There's a campaign to discredit him. And in verse 78, uh, they wrong him through falsehoods. There's some kind of, I don't know, online campaign going on to make him look bad. And on and on and on. It finally it goes until finally in verse 84, the psalmist cries out, How much must your servant endure? When, when will you judge those who persecute me? And he contrasts the lives of those uh, who, may, who are making his life hell. He says, these guys, they have no love for your word. They have no regard for your word, but I do. I'm constantly being shaped by your word. What's going on here? The psalmist asks a pretty legit question. On what basis should I keep on going? On what basis can I have confidence that I'm not the fool they claim me to be? On what basis should I shape my life, continue to shape my life on your word, have confidence in it? On what basis can I continue to think that I will be comforted, I will be vindicated, I will know life, he's saying. And, and when you read that word life, it's, it's, it's not just being actually physically alive, it's a quality of life. It's, it's experiencing the blessing of God. It's that quality of life that's in the framework there. These these people, these opposing worldviews, this is an overwhelming environment and it has almost made an end of me on earth, he says in verse 87. For this person, this psalmist who's writing this, the word of God needs to be more than a, than a theory, than some kind of abstract guide. It must be fit for life. It must supply him with unshakable confidence for him to keep returning back to it to do life. And in our passage today uh, that Bronte read to us, that's what we see the psalmist doing, moving immediately, rolling into answering that question. Our psalmist explains in the clearest terms, in illogical terms, why he has confidence in God's word and explains out the implications of that confidence. In other words, his confidence in scripture allows him to apply and use scripture in the most effectual ways in his life. It's actually doing something. What follows in, in the passage that Bronnie read to us is a, is a twofold reflection, if you like, of on what basis God's word shapes him and, and should shape us with confidence. Like on what basis does that take place? The psalmist begins the section there in verse 89 with the basis of ontology. Now, Sandy's always at me about words, uh, using words that no one understands. But ontology is just the nature of being, the nature of existence. Is the word of God subject to some other force or need? Does it need help? Does it, does it need to get instruction from somewhere? Is it like your iPhone that constantly needs upgrades to deal with advances in technology and information? Like when it was created, it couldn't deal with what's come along now, so it needs upgrades. Is it, is it like that? Like, see, these phones, we can't upgrade. It's driving us crazy. God's word shapes us with confidence because of its eternal quality. It is the original source of all information. There is not one neutron cell chemical, not one feeling or emotion or element or anything in creation that does not owe its existence and therefore its capacity to develop and, and to be understood doesn't owe its existence to God's word. God's word has the same uh, eternal quality as God himself in that it has always existed and it establishes all things. Isaiah 48 says the grass withers and the flowers fade. These, these things that come along, 
they go, but the word of God remains forever. Through the word, though, though the word of God, sorry, comes to the psalmist and to people in general, to you and I in general, in the course of human history, it's not reacting to that history. It's not shaped by that history, but rather it comes into history to bear ultimate reality and ultimate truth about God into that history, into that person's life. It bears ultimate reality about humanity into that moment in history. Its substance, its truthfulness are already fixed in eternity. Rather than being reshaped by history, the words come to explain how best this moment in history should be lived, should be understood. The language that the psalmist uses is that it stood ready in preparedness. It's eternal quality waiting to shape its hearers with confidence. Heaven bears witness to the fact that it has abided and never changed in its perfections, taking counsel from no one. It speaks into human history and into the human heart. And as the psalmist thinks on the eternal uh, nature of God's word, Confidence shapes his reliance on it. Confidence comes in. This is a dependable, dependable attribute in my life. And he doubles down on it again later in verses 152 and 160. In verses 90 to 91, which are actually a couple of verses, uh, of the very few verses in the psalm that don't actually mention or use the word, word, or word of God. But what's happening is the psalmist is developing his thought on why the word of God shapes him with confidence. And that is because the uncreated, unchanging, perfect, eternal word uh, is what lies behind the faithful, God's faithfulness, the faithfulness of God. The word cannot change, will not change. Therefore, neither will God's commitment to what the word has established, namely creation and all the inhabitants of the earth. The faithfulness of God is most directly and practically seen and experienced in his creative work of the establishing and the sustaining of the earth in which we all live. Uh, it's, a work of the, it's a work of the word of God. That all creation sprang into existence out of nothing uh, through uh, the power of God's word is both an Old Testament and a New Testament claim. We can read about that in most commonly in Genesis 1, and we can read about that in Colossians 1 there. God's work is dependable. Uh, God is faithful because God and his word are dependable, and the permanence of the earth, which he created, is an emblem and a guarantee of that faithfulness. God, by his appointment, God, by his appointment uh, or in his appointment, uh, in the whole of creation, uh, it, it continues... I think I've read that wrong. God, by God's, this is dyslexic brain, by God's appointment, the whole of creation continues as a place where people can live with a certain amount of confidence. It's God's appointments, his instruction, it's his word to creation, that's what I'm trying to say, that generates the confidence that it will behave the way it has always behaved. It's a promise that God actually spoke with words to Noah in Genesis 8.20. While the earth remains, and we go, well, the earth remains. Like, that doesn't sound, that sounds a bit shady, like something's going to happen. But that gets explained later in the New Testament. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. 
And the reason for this is that creation is not on some kind of um, uh, self-responding cycle of doom, as a lot of people think these days. Creation is actually serving its creator. It does what it's designed to do. It does what his word instructs it to do. Seasons, seed time and harvest, summer and winter, day and night. There is order, there is permanence, and there can be confidence in it. Now, I'm not dismissing the impact of our actions and our activities on the environment. I'm not dismissing that we, we kind of see the environment change. The most significant of these impacts being the fall through which uh, the curse and decreation came into effect. And in that also a relationship of human sinfulness with creation where, where exploitation and greed and these kind of things uh, are in operation towards our planet rather than the one of stewardship that came by the word of God. So yeah, not only have we impacted creation in a negative way, in a way we were not created to or told to, we are also accountable for how we have treated God's gift of creation. Something that the psalmist is far more aware of as he writes than, than we are. For the psalmist, though, with all that framework in mind, if God's word can be trusted to guide creation with faithfulness, and we add until recreation, like the, you know, uh, that we would see in 1 Peter, we read about the recreation of the world. And, and we read about that in Revelation, like we are heading towards like sin and all this corrupted the world. It looks like it's out of control, but it's moving towards a moment when God will actually make all things new. That's our story. Then surely, if that is the case, then his word can confidently be applied to all situations and environments that, that we face inside this creation. That is the basis for the psalmist's confidence. Uh, I was thinking this morning when we went through it again, this is how my sermons get longer than they should be. Uh, it's a bit like when Abraham says to, uh, when God says to Abraham, you know, get out of your tent, count the stars in the sky if you can. You're like your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky. And God is not giving uh, Abraham a mathematical challenge there. He's giving him confidence. He's saying, hey, look, if I can create all of this and I can hold all this in place, let me tell you, I can give you a few kids. Confidence, that's what's going on. The psalmist in this too personalizes the faithfulness of God, the basis that shapes his confidence. It is about uh, human well-being. God's faithfulness is toward human well-being, not merely towards uh, planetary function. God's faithfulness endures to all generations. There is not one single person who will walk this earth that cannot place their confidence in the word of God or live confidently under the rules that God's word has, whether they're ethical or whether they're um, meteorological. His word is not limited to a particular moment in time or a particular person in time, but is fit for purpose for all generations from generation to generation it remains the same what God has to say uh, to Adam will be as valid to him as it is to Noah as it is to Abraham uh, as it is to Moses to Esther to Daniel to Mary to John the Baptist to Paul to you and I 
We can accurately know God at any time and in any space from his word, and we can confidently live in the light of that knowledge. It is the forever faithfulness of the word of God that that stands forth out of eternity, that sustains creation uh, for the well-being of its inhabitants, that, the, that gives the psalmist the confidence that he has in his personal life as one of those descendants. And it should do the same in our lives for us as we live in our own moments of history. The word of God is not just another part of creation or human thinking. It is the very substance of its existence, out of which its existence came. And the, the psalmist has that uh, at their disposal through, through the laws, through the precepts, through the statutes and the testimonies to guide and sustain their life, to shape it with confidence despite what might be trending uh, in, in the pop culture of his day, in the pop culture of our day, despite what may, might be considered you know, new wisdom in, in the day of the psalmist. Confidence is shaped by, stead, by the steadfast, eternal reliable word of God and having reflected on what the basis of his confidence in the word of God is the psalmist now returns again just like on dot points throughout the rest of the psalm uh, to the effect that has on his life namely that that a life shaped by God's word provides confidence and peace for the soul we do not uh, go to God's word to escape the realities of this life but to be strengthened in them uh, by the word we may not be able to delight in what is going on in the world, but we can delight in, the word, in what the Word of God says and what His Word comes to us as. It should never be forgotten or far from our thoughts. The Word of God equips us to confidently deal with change, to confidently deal with adverse cultures, with mockers, with corrupt environments that would seek to see us end in shame. It has the power to save us and to keep us close to God to delighting in him. In verse 94, the psalmist seeks out God's precepts. The, the picture there, uh, the language there is of, of, of beating a path through competing narratives and ideas to consult and inquire and, and repeatedly read the word of God. And philosophies change. Human thinking changes. Political systems change. Their approach to things, they, they, they fail and they have to go again. Promises and contracts are broken. And, and that's just been our experience in the last 24 months of, of trying to work out the best way to deal with, with fighting a virus. But God's word is eternally fixed and it's not taken by surprise. It's not overwhelmed by environments, but bringing counsel and confidence to those who, who beat a path to it. When they get there, they find that it is unlimited in its ability to satisfy, in its ability to preserve and give life and confidence. Derek uh, Kinder, he's an Old Testament scholar, says, as, as the psalmist wraps up there in verse uh, 96 of just this little stanza, this verse could well be the summer, summary of Ecclesiastes, where every, enterprise, where every earthly enterprise has its day and then comes to nothing. And we're only God, we're only in God and in his commandments do we get beyond these frustrating limits. 
There are no limits. There are no edges, no end to the counsel of God's word. It never tires. Uh, it never needs an upgrade. It, it's never, it never changes. It never shifts because of culture. The psalmist has seen the limits to even the best uh, of humanity and its ability and its thinking. There's only a certain distance you can go. There's only so far you can go. There's only so much you can understand. And then you hit the limits of what, of what we have to offer up. At some point, something changes. Some new thinking comes along. What we thought was clever there changes to be stupid down there. Discredits what we thought from one century to the next. How often do we come across something and think, oh, that's just perfect. It's just what I need. I mean, whether it's a philosophy, whether it's a material object like a car or a bike, whether it's a relationship like a partner in marriage, and then we find that it's got issues and it's got limitations. Not so the word of God, says the psalmist, and his heart takes comfort in that, and it is at peace. And the question is, does it do that in ours? Is it... Is our confidence, are we beating a path to the word of God to find confidence there? Let's pray. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my plea come before you. Deliver me according to your word. My lips will pour forth praise, for you teach me your statutes. My tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. With my whole heart I seek you. I beat a path to you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored your word up in my heart, that I might not sin against you, that I might not come to shame. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. I long for your salvation, O Lord. Your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you. Let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commands. Amen.